Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the China History Podcast. Laszlo Montgomery here for you. As always, our 247th episode this time, part four in our CHP overview, the history of Xinjiang. As we've inched our way down the timeline, we have watched the ebb and flow of Han Dynasty Chinese domination in the various regions in Xinjiang. The Han Dynasty, one hell of a good run, at least for a while. But good things don't last forever, and neither did the Han in the 190s. Along came Dong Chuo and all the damage he did to what remained of Liu Bang's once great dynasty, followed by Cao Cao, which ultimately led to the division of China into three kingdoms, 220 to 280. The northern kingdom of Cao Wei extended all the way west into the Hexi Corridor, butting up against Xinjiang, and they wasted no time in establishing relations with various states in the Tarim Basin, the Kingdom of Shu in the southwest, home of Liu Bei, Zhuge Liang, and other luminaries, because of their proximity to Xinjiang, like Cao Wei, they also maintained relations with several of these oasis kingdoms. The Wu Kingdom, the third of the three, being located in China's southeastern part, they were cut off from Xinjiang and weren't involved with that area during the Three Kingdoms period. And with China divided like it was, there was no one single dynasty or kingdom that was as big and bad as the Han, which meant for these states and kingdoms located around the basins of Xinjiang, well, for a time they were relatively free of Chinese control and interference. And during this long period of disunity that lasted clear through to the end of the 6th century, they got to enjoy some semblance of self-rule over a sustained period of time. But that didn't mean they were free and clear of all danger. We'll see in a bit. There were still other nomadic tribes from the north who penetrated Xinjiang to get their hands on some of the riches. As the 3rd century came to a close and the 4th began, China was divided up, and there began a rather long period of Han Chinese disengagement from Xinjiang. Normally in past times, when Chinese power and influence waned, it was an opportunity for the Xiongnu to revive their fortunes. But this time, 3rd, 4th century, the Xiongnu as well, for all their own reasons, began to fade. The confederation that had once terrorized the oasis kingdoms of Xinjiang for so many years, they split up. Some went to the west, some migrated back to former lands in northern Shanxi, Gansu, and Inner Mongolia. And as it was with so many of these northern nomads from beyond the Great Wall, they slowly disappeared, only to live on as strands of DNA that ended up getting blended in with others in North China and elsewhere in Central Asia. These Xiongnu men and women from Modu Chanyu's time, like the ancient Egyptians of Pharaonic times, you'd be hard-pressed to find any of these people in their ancient forms walking around these days. 
With Xinjiang so far away to the west, it wasn't as easy a place to hold on to compared to the core lands of China between, I'll say, Shanxi province and the China coast. To project that much military power, which was the only way to maintain control, the Chinese state had to be united and firing on all cylinders. Anytime a crisis hit and the center turned its attention to emergencies closer to home, they lost control of Xinjiang. End of the Eastern Han Dynasty, 220 all the way clear through to 581 with the arrival of the Sui, China was racked with war and endless contention between competing states. And these northern steppe people were as fearsome to the Chinese in the 3rd and 4th centuries as the Mongols were in the 13th. Their violence and fearsomeness, coupled with the disruption of Chinese society they caused, led to these mass migrations that I've spoken about in past episodes. Besides migrating en masse to the south of China, well, during this time period, many Han Chinese also saw western China, including Xinjiang, to be somewhat of a safer haven compared to the havoc in the traditional China heartland. Not everyone migrated southward. But out in Xinjiang, so far away, so hard to get to, and so hard to survive in once you got there, that was a bridge too far for most all of these contending dynasties in the eastern half of China. We'll look at the Liang Dynasty, former and later, next episode. They were the westernmost of all these northern 16 kingdoms. As the Xiongnu faded, a new group of people rose to dominance in the north. They used to bow before the Xiongnu, but now they were the baddest guys in the neighborhood. And these were the Xianbei. I won't talk about them much because they aren't as central to our Xinjiang story as the Xiongnu. The empire that was built by the Xianbei was more of a Mongolian empire that stretched from present-day Manchuria, Inner Mongolia, Mongolia, clear through to the west, just beyond Xinjiang into Kazakhstan. You've heard of the Xianbei before. They carved out a nice place for themselves in early Chinese history with the dynasty they left behind, the Northern Wei of the Southern and Northern Dynasties period. More about them next episode. You know, there were so many different tribes of these nomads wandering around the lands north of China. None of these nations left any written records and the artifacts dug out of the ground you know, offer up more speculation rather than facts on all these steppe people, or wuhu, as the Chinese called them in their histories. And Buddhism, as we'll see in the coming episodes, was having a feeding frenzy. Before all this new Buddhism trickled into China, it first percolated for a while in and around the Tarim Basin. And many of these city-states are Oasis kingdoms, so flush with riches earned from the Silk Road trade, well, they became the earliest and most important centers of Buddhist learning. Despite the violent times in between the Han and the Sui, trade still flourished. There was still an insatiable demand for all those nice China products throughout all the great trading entrepots between Dunhuang and the Eastern Mediterranean. And in order to feed this demand... This ancient one-belt-one-road that had developed over the years was busy every trading season. And the most legendary of all these Silk Road trading kingdoms was in Sogdia. This was their golden age. The Sogdians 
They were just one of many people Zhang Qian bumped into during his mid-2nd century BCE journey. Anyway, these Indo-Iranian people, these Sogdians, whose lands were to the north of the Kushan Empire and west of Xinjiang, they were central to an enormous portion of the two-way trade between all of Central Asia and China. In fact, during this period, in between the Han and the Sui, the Sogdians dominated Silk Road trade. They were Zoroastrians and didn't go in for Buddhism that much. Let me mention again. The Sogdians were Indo-Iranian and spoke a language from that branch. And their Sogdian language was the lingua franca for the whole Silk Road. Their role as traders and diplomats was legendary, and their presence was noted in historical records found throughout Asia, from Manchuria to the Middle East. Despite what's popularly thought, most of the Silk Road trade wasn't carried out Marco Polo style. One trade caravan traversing the whole Asian continent (laughs) to provision such an enterprise was extremely ambitious and almost impossible for those times. All the great silks and manufacturers of ancient China that still have staying power into our own century, Chinese traders usually only brought their wares only as far as Xinjiang. And they did their business all around the Tarim Basin. And after the deals were done and goods were exchanged, these 36 kingdoms or 50 kingdoms, they took over from there and got everything distributed throughout all the markets of Central Asia. And nobody seemed to do it better, more efficiently, or trouble-free than the Sogdians. They are remembered as the greatest of the ancient Silk Road traders. Clear through to the Tang Dynasty, they were the dominant merchants, envoys, and influencers. But their lands were all west of Xinjiang, so let's not wander off on another epic tangent. Let's quickly run through a few of the better known of these oasis kingdoms that rimmed the Tarim Basin and served as way stations along the Silk Roads, where goods and ideas could be exchanged, respite could be had, Buddhist learning could be obtained, sutras translated and copied, and relationships created or fortified for the next time these people met again. So while we have this lull in the action, comparatively speaking... Let's take a quick glance at the more important kingdoms, where they were located relative to each other. We'll sort that all out. Now, most of these kingdoms have vanished into the desert and are still being excavated today by archaeologists. The kingdoms are gone, but the cities remain in their present form. Hami, Kashgar, Khotan, Churchen, Kucha. And in Chinese, Hami, Kashir, Hetian, Chiemo, Chiozi. Let's start on the South Rim. These were the kingdoms of Kashgar, Yarkand, Khotan, and Shanshan. Let's start with the last kingdom in the West before you wander beyond China's current borders. This is Kashgar. Marco Polo passed through here in the 1270s. Well, everybody passed through here on their way in or out of China. The Chinese had names for all these kingdoms, and they called Kashgar the Kingdom of Shule. It occupies the extreme western end of the Tarim Basin. The kingdom of Shule, of which Kashgar was the most important city, wasn't a military power and thrived on trade. When traveling east from Parthia or Central Asia in the direction of China, Kashgar was the first of these oasis states you came to. There, 
At this commercial hub, China-bound traders could elect to take the northern or southern Silk Road routes, depending on who their Tyron Basin trading partners were. The closer we get to the 19th century, the more important Kashgar becomes. So I'm going to hold off on that, and we'll come back to Kashgar and the Shula Kingdom when we get to the rise of the Gurkturks and the Tang Dynasty. The next kingdom down the road to the east, about 500 kilometers away from Kashgar, a distance of Santa Monica Pier to the Grand Canyon, came the city of Khotan, today called Hetian. The Chinese knew this place way back then as Yutian. I don't know if I'd call this the most famous and fabled of these ancient oasis kingdoms, but yeah, it's right up there. These parts of the Tarim Basin, the South Rim, these were mostly Indo-Iranic people. Saka. We looked at them in part two. Chinese called them the Sai. Let me mention again, hope you don't mind. These people from two, three thousand years ago inhabiting these Xinjiang lands, well, everyone out there were Indo-European. Some spoke these Tocharian languages. Some spoke the Indo-Iranian languages. The language of Khotan was called Khotanese and was one of these Saka Indo-Iranian languages. The official dates of the Kingdom of Khotan are 56 to 1006 CE. The kingdom was based right around present-day Hutian, but stretched all the way west into Tajikistan. To thrive, you need a day of water. All the great cities of the world, they were either ports or on great rivers. Khotan was watered by the Tarim, Khotan, and Yarkhan rivers. Being inland rivers in this arid of a climate, the waters run hard when the snows of the Kunlun Mountains that fed them melted in the spring and summer. And then in the cold months, when the mountains held all the water in the form of ice, the rivers run low or dry out altogether. Like with pretty much every other Tarim Basin kingdom, Khotan was one of the many places that Zhang Qian stopped and visited. This would have been sometime around 140 BCE. And like it is with everything around Xinjiang, whatever we know about Zhang Qian and practically everything else from this age comes straight out of the Book of Han. And of course, what has been gleaned from archaeological evidence and anecdotal writings from travelers. Besides their rich agriculture, thanks to the abundance of water for irrigation, Khotan in its day was particularly famous for several commodities. One was camels, the trucks of the desert. But what Khotan was particularly famous for was their nephrite jade that they carved out of the Kunlun Mountains. All that jade in China, well, not all of it, but the most prized jade, all came from Khotan. The jade burial suits of the emperors, also from Khotan. Khotan was filled with endless groves of mulberry trees as far as the eye can see, and the leaves from these mulberry trees fed the Bombyx mori moth larvae who spun the cocoons that provided all the raw materials for Khotan's silk industry. They were already masters of silk by the time of the Western Han, and they didn't just make the fabric. Khotan was also famous for their silk carpets as well as other textile products. So in addition to their advantageous location with such an abundance of fresh water, not to mention their prime location on the southern route of the Silk Road, two stops away from Kashgar, they also had these thriving industries going that 
kept this kingdom in business for a long time, almost a thousand years. The tombs from these royals and aristocrats who populated these cities of the kingdom of Khotan, most of them were plundered over the centuries, and it's another case of historical slim pickings as far as the archaeological excavations of the kingdom of Khotan. Three kingdoms all in a row, Kashgar, Yarkhan, and Khotan, they all competed and maintained a sometimes not-so-amicable rivalry. We'll come back to this magical land again when we get to the early Tang and the amazing adventures of the Buddhist monks who visited Khotan and wrote extensively of it, including its Indian origins. One of these Buddhist monks we'll get to was Xuanzang. He had written that Khotan was founded by banished princes of India's great king Ashoka. Despite the legend, the first inhabitants were Indo-Iranic Saka people, not Indian. We mentioned Lolan last episode in the story of Fujietsu. That was the ancient city, also called Kuran, that gave us the Tarim mummy, Beauty of Lolan. The ruins of Lolan today are about half a day's drive from Dunhuang. These are the ruins of the successor kingdom of Lolan named Shanshan, and Fujietsu conquered it. I guess you could call Lolan the first stop on the Silk Road, right after one left Dunhuang. Actually, travelers and traders, no matter going east or west, they had to pass through Lolan. Zhang Qian included. He had mentioned that it was located right where the Tarim River flowed into Lapnor. And when the Tarim River changed course and water no longer flowed into Lapnor, you know, that pretty much signaled the end of the kingdom of Lolan. When the last of the Mohicans there gave up, the city was abandoned to the Taklamakan Desert. It's supposed that these residents migrated northwards towards Hami, close to the mountains with easy access to water, not to mention the melons. For many years, Lolan was like a bile bear to the Xiongnu, who depended heavily on the foodstuffs and tribute they extracted. The troops of Han China crossed swords with the Xiongnu and Lolan on a number of occasions. Just like with Khotan and Kashgar, this Lolan or Shanshan kingdom was made up of a number of cities. And we'll hear these city names again and again throughout this series. These were Charklik, present-day Ruoqiang, Churchen, present-day Chiamo, home of Churchen Man, who we learned about in part one, and the westernmost part of Shanshan was the city of Niya, which was referred to in the Book of Han as Jingjue. In the world of archaeology, Niya is quite renowned because of the discoveries and excavations carried out there by Sir Oral Stein right at the turn of the century in 1900. These are known as the Niya ruins, the Niya Yijert. Lots of stuff uncovered, especially from the time of the Western Han. And you don't have to go to Xinjiang to see them. Japanese, British, and Indian museums hold most of the fruits of these archaeological labors. If you look on a physical map of Xinjiang, you can see very clearly the Turpan Basin, like a sunken chip sitting on the eastern shoulder of the Tarim Basin with the Tianshan, the heavenly mountains, segregating the two basins from each other. Let's look at Turpan. Chinese call this place Tulufan. You see it on maps as both Turpan and Turfan. Unlike the South Rim kingdoms we've already discussed, in the Turpan Basin, 
they were speakers of Indo-European languages, one of the Tocharian languages, it's thought. Perhaps they were Scythians, but that term has been used liberally in ancient times as a catch-all word for the nomadic peoples of the Eurasian steppe north of the Black and Caspian Seas. The Scythians are also called the first nomads to traverse these grasslands about 3,000 years ago. The farthest we could reliably go back in the history of Turpan would be to this Jushur kingdom. I mentioned this in part three when we were discussing the conquests of Banyong, that he had taken these ten kingdoms of Jushur, a word to Chinese speakers. The character for Ju is written with the same character for vehicle, Chu. Instinctively, you'd call this place Chushu, and some scholars and archaeologists do. But most sources I read refer to the place as Jushu and its political entity as the Jushu Kingdom. The Chinese had their own way to refer to this Jushu Kingdom. They called this place Gushu, and surely other people refer to it as something else. So this Jushu Kingdom and their civilization was known as Gushu Wenhua, or Gushu Culture and was also called Subeshi culture. It went back as far as 3000 BCE, but no later than 2000 BCE. These Gushir people were the earliest inhabitants of Turpan, and like I just mentioned, probably, but not necessarily, spoke a proto-Tokharian language. When Zhang Qian blew into town during his famous 2nd century BCE journey, Jushir was still under the Xiongnu yoke, Jushu was no different from any of these oasis kingdoms in that they were all ants fighting an elephant. Whoever came in and intimidated them the most, these trading centers would inevitably bend the knee to them. One belief is that these earliest inhabitants of the Turpan Basin arrived via the grassland Silk Road, the Taoyuan Sichou That's how many people ended up in Turpan and elsewhere in Xinjiang and elsewhere in Central Asia, of course. The Jushir kingdom began its rise as the regional power in Turpan around the time of the Warring States period, Eastern Zhou Dynasty. Their capital was at Jiaohe, a half-hour drive west from the modern-day city of Turpan. It was built at the convergence of two rivers and was a thriving place with a population estimated about 12,000, not much. Let me mention again. None of these places were grand in scale like you'd see in China. This kind of climate and environment in Xinjiang wasn't conducive to building these massive cities that supported a six- or seven-figure population. Even today, the entire population of Xinjiang was only something like 25 million. And land-wise, it's the biggest province in China. This capital at Jiaohe has ancient ruins that could be seen on your next visit to Turpan. They're about a half hour out of town. Josh Summers of farwestchina.com has a great video of these ruins. I'll put a link to that on the uh, CHP website at teacup.media. Jiaohe's location was north of the Tianshan, but the Jushu kingdom was spread both north and south of these mountains that separated the Turpan and Tarim basins. Jushu saw plenty of action during the Han Xiongnu Wars. In fact, the decisive battle and that long-running contention between these two powers in Xinjiang climaxed in 60 BCE at the Battle of Jushu. As a result of this battle, the Xiongnu were pushed north 
out of harm's way, allowing Han Dynasty China to plant their flag in the Turpan Basin, whereupon they divided Jushir up into eight mini-kingdoms. And these people who lived there were always caught in the middle of the Han Xiongnu contention. But interestingly, I read somewhere that when all was said and done, Jushir and its capital, Jiaohe, well, it's said that this place in the Turpan Basin ended up being the first melting pot where Han, Xiongnu, and local Indo-European people, maybe Scythians, and no doubt the occasional Altaic who wandered this far south, they all sort of mixed and lived peacefully together. You know what starts to happen when that happens. One of the great discoveries of these Jushir people were the Yanghai tombs, the Yanghai Gumu. I mentioned them in part one when introducing the Tarim mummies. In the early 2000s, they discovered this gravesite where these Gushir people buried their departed. The tombs were dated to about 800 BCE. There's something like 240 graves, the most famous being the one belonging to, it's believed, a shaman. I mentioned the shaman of Yanghai in part one, the guy I said Snoop, Tommy, and Bill would dig. He was very well preserved, like so many of the remains excavated. One nice thing about the deadly weather and climate, I guess you could say. Now, besides the world's oldest marijuana stash, the other thing discovered in this tomb were desiccated food remains. Among them, lots of capers. The little tiny green buds I always push to the side of my plate whenever I get a lox platter at Factors. Capers have been around since at least 9500 BCE over in Mesopotamia. And Caparis spinosa was very big among these Gusher or Jusher people. That's as ancient a food condiment or medicine as they come. While we're on the subject of the Turpan Basin, some of you might recall a couple of years ago in 2018, they discovered dumplings in some 1,700-year-old tomb from the Sixth Dynasty's period. That was in Turpan. After the Han officials set up the new capital at Jiaohe, well, that was pretty much it for these Gushir people there. And over the next centuries, the Chinese, during the Han and after the Han fell, well, what was set up there in the former Jishu was, well, I guess what you could call a kind of Chinese colony. And this was called Gaochang. It was also known as Kaurakosha. The city was already there when Han officials renamed it Gaochang. This is the name you will hear many times between the 4th to the 8th centuries. In the year 327, Gaochang was turned into a commandery, sort of like a, like a military government that ran the operation. This was during the 16 kingdoms. And several of these northern kingdoms in China at various times took control of Gaochang. Much more on this important city of Gaochang later. What's important to keep in mind is that Gaochang was near Turpan. It wasn't part of the Tarim Basin. Let me close out this episode by introducing two more important players in this history. These were the Roran and the Hephthalites. The Roran were the third of these great nomadic steppe people to rule these same lands that Genghis Khan would one day lead. They were also referred to as the Runran, among other names. As with practically everything from this era, not sure about how they got this name or if it was some Chinese pejorative term. First there were the Xiongnu, then the Xianbei, and now the Roran. 
They came from Mongolia and began to make their mark in the 4th century CE, just as the Xiongnu were starting to fade from history. Like the Xiongnu and Xianbei, who came before them, these Roran were a loose confederation of nomads who were united by a strong and capable leader. The Xiongnu had Ma Du Chanyu, and the Roran had Yu Jiu Shilin. He was the Kagan of the Roran from 402 to 410, and it was the Roran who, interestingly, were the first of these northern nomadic peoples to use the title Khan for their leader. And that title didn't go out of style for centuries. The Roran were on again, off again, enemies of the Northern Wei Dynasty. Now, we'll look at them next episode when we focus on the 16 kingdoms and the Northern and Southern Dynasties. The Northern Wei, these Xianbei people, they had a love-hate relationship with the Roran that was reminiscent of the state of affairs that existed between the Han Dynasty and the Xiongnu. The Roran, like the Xiongnu, were once based in and around the Ordos region of northern Shanxi and across the border into Inner Mongolia. And like the Qin dynasty general Meng Tian did to the Xiongnu in 215 BCE, it was the mighty northern Wei military who shoved the Roran out of their homeland. And like the Xiongnu, the Roran later went on to bigger and better things, setting up their Kaganet on the northern steppe. Dawn of the 5th century CE, China and the land surrounding China had plenty of excitement going on. The eastern Jin dynasty was keeping the Huaxia Chinese flame alive in the southern half of China, including down in Vietnam, if you remember. This was the period of China's so-called second domination of Vietnam from 43 to 544 CE. And in the 460s, 470s, the Roran headed west and moved into the Turpan Basin, putting an end to Gaochang in 460 and getting as far as the south rim of the Tarim Basin, forcing the kingdom of Hotan to submit. After they had taken over Gaochang, the Roran kept the Han Chinese leadership to manage the place who were, of course, beholden to them. This lasted 180 years, from 460 to 640. All throughout the 400s, the Roran battled with the northern Wei. By the 550s, the Roran were dealt a fatal blow by Turkic tribes allied with the Western Wei, a successor kingdom of the Northern Wei, who bid the stage of history farewell in 534. But not before they contributed highly to the fall of the Roran in Xinjiang. Let's finish up quickly with another group of people, the ones who put the final nail in the coffin of the Roran's domination in Xinjiang, a people who stayed a while in Xinjiang, left their mark, and then disappeared. These were the Hephthalites, a.k.a. the White Huns, but not necessarily any relation to the Huns who ravaged Europe. The Chinese knew them as the Yen Da. Prior to their rise, they had been one of the many tribes subservient to the Roran. The Hephthalites were based west of Xinjiang in the land known as Transoxiana, Sogdia, and Bactria, areas once conquered by Alexander the Great. That's the reason for the Hephthalites having this Greek-sounding name, as opposed to something a little bit more Altaic-sounding. Their language was Bactrian, and they used an alphabet based on the Greek. Their kingdom was spread all the way south to portions of northern and western India, where the Kushan Empire held sway for the first three and a half centuries of the Common Era. 
The Hephthalites were feared as much as any of these warrior nations and were equally expert in intimidating their neighbors. Some experts have suggested that these Hephthalites were the ancestors of today's Pashtuns, the eastern Iranian people who populate parts of Afghanistan and Pakistan. The Pashtuns, they sure know how to wage a good war. Like a lot of these kingdoms that thrived during the latter half of the first millennium, there isn't much solid evidence of who these Hephthalites were or where they originated from. Some scholars say they came from the Jishir kingdom of the Turpan Basin. Some say they came from the Yuechir. They began their rise as vassals of the Roran during the 4th century, and like the Roran, they also referred to their rulers as Khans. And late in the 5th century, they expanded east into Xinjiang and remained the most powerful force out there until their end came in 557 at the hands of the Gurkturks and the Sasanians from Iran. What's important to know about the Hephthalites, as far as our story is concerned, is that Well, they were one of the many conquerors who weren't from Xinjiang, but sent troops there and stayed as long as they could and lived off the fat of the kingdoms of the Tarim and Turpan basins. And as was the case with all these Central Asian kingdoms and empires, they stayed around until they were knocked out by a bigger and better organized confederation of tribes from the northern steppe. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as predicted, we're way late into stoppage time right now. We'll look at the kingdom of Kucha next time and see how Buddhism took China by storm. A big expression of thanks to everyone who was signed up at my Patreon and became a patron of the CHP. Patreon.com. Just search for the China History Podcast and sign up. Three bucks a month gets access to all kinds of other material entirely unsuitable for this respectable and long-running program. And a big thanks also to my generous benefactors who have donated to help promote this worthy cause at the CHP PayPal Donation Center at paypal.me slash China History Podcast. A big thank you to you all. Links, as usual, at the website at teacup.media. Okay, that is going to be that for this time. We ran a little long, but nobody is going to be charged extra. Laszlo Montgomery here, signing off on a gorgeous, hot, sunny L.A. morning. More history of Xinjiang coming at part five. Still have the Tang, the Song, Yuan, Ming, and then all the excitement that happens in the Qing dynasty, including the great game played by Britain and Russia. We can crack open Peter Perdue's book when we finally get to the 17th century, I beg you, don't fade on me just yet. Do try and make it back one more time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.